Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's September 26th. Johnny Appleseed was born on this day in 1774 in Lemonster, Massachusetts. He was the second oldest child of Elizabeth Simmons Chapman and Nathaniel Chapman. Obviously from birth, he was John Chapman. His mother died when he was very young, not long after the birth of John's younger brother, who died a few more weeks after that. Nathaniel Chapman remarried. He and his second wife, Lisa, had 10 children together. They all lived together in a 400-square-foot house. There's a story that John was kicked in the head by a horse when he was about 21 and that he had to have part of his skull removed. It's not entirely clear whether that really happened, but it has been used to explain some of his eccentricities, like the apples and the wandering. John and his half-brother Nathaniel left Massachusetts in the late 1890s and started making their way west. On the other side of the Ohio River, a huge land grab was going on in the Northwest Territory as homesteaders lay claim to lands that had previously been home to North America's indigenous peoples. This forced the native population into increasingly smaller territory, including onto reservations. The people who set up homesteads out on this land had to improve the land and live on it in order to keep it. So... Chapman moved just ahead of the land grab. He would clear land and set up a brush fence to keep out the animals and plant apples. He planted other things too, but apples are really what he's known for. If he had been interested in money, he could have become really rich doing this. He had a real knack for figuring out where people were going to go and getting there ahead of them and planting the apple orchards that they had to plant to keep their land already planted before they got there. But it seems like he really wasn't interested in money. He gave away a lot of his apple plantings, and he spent a lot of the money that he did earn on things like buying horses that were being mistreated and then putting them out to pasture. It seems like he was really soft-hearted. There are a lot of stories about him coming to the rescue of animals, and he was also a vegetarian. From time to time, Chapman tried to buy land of his own, but he could never really manage to keep it. He didn't stay on the land, which was required for him to keep it, or sometimes he just lost it to claim jumpers. Most of these apples that he was planting also were not for eating. He tended to plant these varieties that were very hard and very bitter. They were for turning into vinegar or apple cider or applejack. Chapman also joined the Church of the New Jerusalem, established by Emanuel Swedenborg and also called the New Church. He started preaching the New Church teachings as he traveled around planting apples. There's also a really dramatic story about him running all night to raise the alarm about an incoming attack during the War of 1812, but that might be apocryphal. If nothing else, if it did happen, he was probably on a horse, not running barefoot the entire way overnight, the way the story goes. So if the image that comes to your mind when somebody says Johnny Appleseed is a thin man in very ragged clothes and bare feet wandering from place to place with a bindle full of apple seeds. That is mostly right. There are even real-life stories about him wearing multiple hats at once, one of them a cooking pot. 
But if your mind's eye, he's singing a song that starts, The Lord is Good to Me, that really came from an animated Disney short in 1948. You can learn more about Johnny Appleseed in the March 18th, 2013 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. And you can subscribe to this Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tomorrow, we will have a 16th century siege. Hi, I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History class, a show that reveals a little bit more about history day by day. The day was September 26th, sometime in the mid-1800s. Windsor McKay was born. McKay was an influential cartoonist and animator, well-known for the comic Little Nemo in Slumberland and his pioneering advances in animation. McKay was born Zenas Windsor McKay, though his birthplace and year is unclear. He began drawing during his childhood, and he later said that he drew for himself, not anyone else. He drew incessantly, anywhere he wanted to, and he said he never saved his drawings. McKay's parents sent him to business college, but he continued to be drawn to art. He skipped classes to draw portraits of visitors at a dime museum. He would sell those drawings and share a cut with the museum. He did not finish business school, but all the time he spent drawing and selling his work helped him hone his skills as a professional artist and it instilled in him a desire to perform. John Goodison, an art professor at Michigan State Normal, took notice of McKay and began giving him private lessons. That helped McKay develop skills in his technique, composition, and perspective. Goodison encouraged him to attend the Art Institute of Chicago. He did go to Chicago, but he did not go to school there. He worked at a printing company in the city, But two years after he arrived there, he moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. There, he began working at another dime museum, but this time, he was making promotional posters and art as an employee. Outside of his work at the museum, he painted billboards and created drawings in a continuous line. Not long after he moved to Cincinnati, he met Maude Leonore Dufour, with whom he later had two children. McKay's ability to do those continuous line drawings and his talent for drawing things from memory proved useful. After eight years at the Dime Museum, he began working for a newspaper called The Tribune as an artist reporter, illustrating stories and drawing cartoons. He also created art as a freelancer for the magazine Life, a lot of which portrayed racist humor, as did other work included in the humor magazine. When the Cincinnati Enquirer offered him a larger salary, he began working there and soon rose to head of its art department. Some of his most popular and notable illustrations were done for a series called The Tales of the Jungle Imps, and they accompanied poems created by the Sunday editor. He was only at the Enquirer for a few years before he moved to New York and began doing illustrations for the New York Herald and the Evening Telegram. There, he began using the comic strip format, which was new but growing more popular. He wanted to have the money and fame that came along with having a popular comic strip that could be syndicated. He found success with his comic strips Little Sammy Sneeze and Dream of the Rarebit Fiend. 
but he was working a lot and did not feel he was being compensated fairly. He ended up getting a raise, and in 1905, his comic Little Nemo in Slumberland made its debut in the Sunday comic section of The Herald. Little Nemo was immediately popular, being picked up for translations in operetta, clothing, and games. It ran in The Herald until 1911, then in the New York American under a different title until 1914. McKay also began performing in theatrical reviews as a fast sketcher. And in 1911, he finished his first animated film, which featured characters from Little Nemo. McKay went on to create more films, including The Story of a Mosquito and Gertie the Dinosaur. With the latter film, he used a technique he called the McKay split system, breaking the dinosaur's movements into small parts and filling in the drawings between the poses. In 1915, he created his longest film, The Sinking of the Lusitania, which he created using transparent celluloid sheets. He found the success and passion in his work on animation, but Hearst Publishing, his employer, was not happy about how much time he was spending on his outside work. Between his relationship with Hearst and feelings about the commercialism of animation, he lost some inspiration around cartoons. In July of 1934, he went into a coma and died at his home in Brooklyn after having a stroke. McKay's work in cartooning and animation greatly influenced the advancement of the animation industry. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you would like to learn more about McKay, you can listen to the two-part episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Windsor McKay. Get more notes from history, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.